in Ecclesiastes 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord. Uh, If you know anything about the life of Johnny Cash, the the preacher in Ecclesiastes might seem like a good comparison. Cash lived his life, as in really lived. Beyond the unhealthy diet, the excessive smoking, the heavy drinking, he would have been a member at the whiskey library, uh, and the intense abuse of both illicit and prescription drugs, he enjoyed the temporary pleasures of venturing off the line. But after half a life of trying to find satisfaction in searching for something meaningful, he found God, or God found him. Uh, Like the preacher, sometime in the late 1960s, by most accounts, he came to the conclusion that fearing God or following God was the only way he might find satisfaction. And so he did, dedicating his life to spreading the gospel. Uh, Though his struggles continued and though he lived a life of contradictions, his work with Billy Graham... His lyrics in his later years, I think, reveal a man who wanted desperately, sincerely, imperfectly to please God. In fact, his last album, which was released in 2002, just a a little less than a year before he died, was called American for The Man Comes Around. The title song focuses on the coming judgment of God, the inevitable end. It was his last public statement. Much like this passage is for the preacher. Both of them look at the end. They look it in the eyes and wonder, did my life please God? The challenge of this passage is that it is less a unit of the book than it is an epilogue. With the inclusio of 1, 2 to 12, 8, vanity of vanities, and the move into the past tense here in 12, 9, we find ourselves taking a step back from all that the preacher has been teaching in this whole book and all of its rich complexity to catch one last glimpse of it as a whole. And what is it that we see? What is the picture of the book, the lesson that the author wishes to leave lingering in our minds as we move on to what is next? It's this. Fear God, for judgment is coming. Let me say that again. Fear God, for judgment is coming. 
let's see how he unpacks this idea. So starting there first in verses 9 to 11, we have the preacher. Uh, The author here, who's not the preacher, the author stakes his central idea of the book, what I've just said, fear God for judgment is coming, on the credibility of the preacher. He tells us quite plainly that the preacher is wise and did exactly what you'd expect of someone who is wise. He acted wisely, teaching people with knowledge, weighing and studying and collecting proverbs. Uh, This is not a new idea. We've seen that the preacher is wise throughout the book as he has shared lesson after lesson and proverb after proverb. And unsurprisingly then, in verse 11, we're given one such proverb built on two images. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Uh, Why does it matter that the preacher is wise? Well, it's because his wisdom, everything he's written here, is useful. But pay attention to those two images. Like a goad, the preacher's wisdom is sharp. It's pointed. It's provocative toward his students. But not only is the preacher's wisdom pointed, it's like a nail. It pushes us towards stability. It's fixed, and it fixes us. It holds us in the truth of his words. I I wonder even if these two images are not getting at this interplay that we've been seeing the last few days between worldly wisdom, his observations about the way the world works and its provocative nature, and divine wisdom, the, the recognition he has throughout the book that the fear of God is the only version of wisdom that satisfies In conveying his wisdom, he both provokes and fixes, goads and nails. And he compels us to and then constrains us in the wisdom of God. So this is an important reminder to us as readers here at the end. Why? Because he's about to remind us, based on the credibility of this preacher, the point of the book, what the preacher has to say next. And what is that point? Because we've, we've heard from the preacher, now we get his point. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. There are a lot of books out there. More will be written. But the pinnacle of human knowledge, the pinnacle of human endeavor, comes down to this one thing, fear God. Again, this this is something we've already seen in this book. We've seen it back in chapter 3. I perceived whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. We saw it in chapter 5. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Also chapter 7. Also chapter 8. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. The message has been here throughout. In a world where all things are possible, a world full of every earthly pleasure, where there is little knowledge that is not recorded and available to us, just ask ChatGPT. The only question that matters to the preacher and 
to us is this. Will you and I fear God? We may live well and even enjoy it, but the transcendent wisdom, the chief end, is only found in one place. The author says it is the whole duty of man, literally the whole of man. The fullness of human existence comes to this. Will we fear God? Now, of course, to answer that, we need to know what it means. Don't forget, he adds a second, and I believe explanatory command, fear God and keep his commandments. For the pious Jewish reader, this is very familiar territory. How does one fear God? The way he always has. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land into which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. This is Moses' prologue to his famous Shema. The greatest commandment, loving God with all your heart, soul, and might, means walking in his ways, following his statutes, laws, and commandments. It's deceptively simple. If you want to be wise, then fear God by following him, by following his word. This, brothers, is deceptively simple for us as well. For a room full of pastors who've just spent three days pouring themselves into God's word, it seems very easy, doesn't it? But it's not as simple to live it as it seems. I go to more workshops than anybody in this room, I'm fairly sure. And yet I need the constant reminder every time to keep giving myself to the word. I need to preach to myself every week before I walk into my pulpit, before I start my sermon preparation. I need to preach to myself so that I might keep giving myself to the word, that I might fear God, that I might keep his commandments. How does Proverbs put it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him and he will set your path straight. Again, why? Why should we give ourselves to godly wisdom, to the fear of the Lord, to following in his ways if it means to keep his commandments? I found this very interesting as I studied this passage uh, because I assumed, as I had every other time I've read this book, that the incentive of following God's ways and being counted among the wise was enough incentive. But the author adds one more line here. A line I think I've skipped over every other time I've read this. It's there at the end. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Throughout the book, the thing motivating, the primary thing motivating the pursuit of godly wisdom has been death. 
But here, there's actually something more than the certainty of death, and that's the certainty of judgment. Now, we've gotten hints that God's judgment underlies the message of this book a few times, but it's been, I think, somewhat understated. I'm mostly talking about the wicked meeting their end in some sort of vague terms, but here we are focusing on the big idea of the whole book, and the author reminds us in very stark terms that everything we do is known to God, whether good or evil, everything, even the secret things. We don't need to be Johnny Cash to know that the private things have a way of becoming public. You and I can probably go back and forth for quite a while naming prominent pastors who have fallen in spectacular fashion. But even our secret sins, if they never become public, are known to God. Every secret thing brought into judgment Godly wisdom, among other things, is recognizing that God's judgment is coming for all of us, and his standard is precise. I'm going to go off script here for a moment. Uh, I have a good friend, uh, a pastor, who's struggling and making foolish decisions because he's struggling. And I'm exasperated and exhausted for him. It's so easy. And on the verge of tragedy at all times (laughs) to forget that more important than the success of ministry or even survival in this world is the fear of the Lord. So, be among the wise. Be among those who walk in God's ways, who know and obey his word, for he is the righteous judge and judgment is coming. Now, in the end, the point is pretty simple. Fear God, for judgment is coming. Give yourself to his word and his ways, for the measurement taken in the end is not how successful you were, how influential your church was, even how large your church membership is, how well-behaved your children are, or even how much you enjoyed your life. Though it is good to enjoy while you have it. The final measurement taken is whether you followed in the ways of God. But of course, that brings us to the great challenge of the book. To the great challenge of wisdom literature in general, I think. If wisdom is obedience to God, what are we sinful and wicked men? What are we supposed to do about that? The obedience is beyond us. I may love God with all my heart, soul, and might, but I obey him in half-hearted, haphazard, and wholly inadequate ways. I obey him about as successfully as my dear Chicago Cubs win championships. (laughs) But let's not forget the source here. Remember a moment ago, 
I told you the first logical move of the author was to stake his claim that fearing God is the wise thing to do, that he stakes his claim on the credibility of the preacher. But the preacher is not actually the source. Back up in verse 11, we're introduced to the actual source of the preacher's wisdom. His wise words are given by one shepherd. Now, we've heard from the preacher and we've heard his point, but behind him is a pastor. Who is it? It's God. Of course, God as shepherd, as pastor of his people, is not uncommon throughout the Hebrew scriptures. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? This specific phrase, one shepherd, is used here and only two other times in the Old Testament. In the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34, we find this verse. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. A few chapters later, we read this. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. The message is actually the same. Walk in the Lord's ways and obey his statutes, but under the pastoral direction of the one shepherd, the one who feeds us with truth and wisdom, the new David. And this is precisely how Jesus talks about himself in John 10. He is the good shepherd, right? Good because he lays down his life for his sheep. And what is the result of that? His sheep know his voice. They follow his words and commandments. And so in verse 16 of John 10, he can say, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. But note the order here. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life so that the sheep know him and know his voice. He is the source of wisdom. He is the reason to fear God. And he has made it possible by laying down his life. He has not exempted us from obedience because we are unable to obey, but in his death and resurrection, he has saved us and enabled us and called us to follow his voice, to walk in his ways, to fear God and to keep his commandments. Of course, we're going to fail, and we will never be without need of that cross. Fearing God only happens for those who lean on that cross. But brothers, leaning on that cross is followed by denying yourself and all those sins, even the secret ones, picking up that cross and following Christ. May we be those who understand that all things will be brought before God, even the secret things, and then be found on the side of wisdom. May we be found among the wise, among those who fear God and keep his commandments, out of love for him, the one who gave himself for us. May we, in the end, have it said of us, as Johnny Cash sang, the wise man will bow down before the throne, and at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns when the man comes around. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the challenging message of this book, a message that compels us towards wisdom, fearing you and following in your ways. May we, through the grace of Christ Jesus, be those 
who do follow you, who do follow your ways, who do fear you. In your son's name we pray this. Amen.